0: That piece is an arrangement on the text that I'm about to read in a couple minutes. It's taken from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. So I invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using the church Bible there, that's going to be on page 571. Again, I want to welcome you all here to Stonehill Church. Uh, I've been gone for the past couple Sundays uh, over in Turkey with the team that you commissioned and sent out on your behalf to work there with refugees in the great and uh, just wonderful city of Istanbul. So, for instance, two weeks ago today, I was preaching to a gathering of of. Arabic-speaking refugees from Syria and Iraq. And then last Sunday, I was speaking to a gathering of Farsi-speaking Iranian refugees. What God's doing there in Istanbul through uh, the people with whom we work, members of our church over there, it's just incredible. See the work of God in the midst of these people. People with... So little hope in their refugee status. Now, uh, Isaiah chapter 6 begins today, a series on the book of Isaiah. We're going to take the next seven Sundays leading up to Easter, and we're going to take a look at seven scenes from the book of Isaiah. And... Uh, uh, I'm going to say more about the turkey trip later on in the sermon and also two weeks from today, but I want to kind of get us nested into Isaiah 6 before I read it. And to do that, I want to talk about something a little bit of trivia that I learned this last week, uh, which is that uh, this upcoming Tuesday, two days from today, is Pancake Tuesday. Uh, how many knew that this is Pancake Tuesday? Yeah, see, there's a few people out there. I, I, this was news to me. Uh, Apparently, in some countries around the world, it's Pancake Tuesday. For me, it's kind of my kind of observance day, you know. Not a high commitment. The only thing you need to do is just eat pancakes to celebrate the day. That sounds like a plan. In fact, I mentioned it to Tracy this morning. Pastor Tracy said, gosh, he said, there's no problem that you cannot solve by just eating pancakes. (laughs) But more seriously, the day was designed in order to use up rich ingredients in a household, butter, eggs, flour, whole milk, to use them up before the next day, Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday, which begins the season of Lent. Forty days leading up to Easter, days of, of spiritual focus and fasting and sacrifice among the people of God. Days that you don't eat pancakes, I get. This Wednesday, we'll be here at the church, as I've already mentioned, we'll be launching the Easter Project. It's our way of uh, encouraging you to observe Lent in some way. You'll get an email if you sign up. You'll get an email delivered into your inbox, as I said, with a devotional for the day. The focus of this year's Easter Project is Jesus' public life in the four gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John on Sundays I want to complement that I want to counterput it counterpoint it so you get Jesus in the gospels in those devotionals on Sundays I want us to look at Jesus in the book of Isaiah or another way to put it is Jesus in the fifth gospel Because for centuries, that's how Isaiah has been referred to in the church, the fifth gospel. And that's because there's all kinds of material in the book of Isaiah about the Messiah, about Jesus of Nazareth, as we now know him. For instance, it's Isaiah who predicted that the Messiah, Jesus, would be born of a virgin. That's chapter 9 of the book. It's Isaiah who promised that this Messiah would not simply be a light to the Jews, born of the Jews, he would be a light to them, but much further and beyond that, he would be a light to all peoples, to the Gentiles. I mean, that point alone, given our global emphasis as a church, given our commitment to diversity in our congregation, that point alone should make Isaiah and his presentation of the Messiah so important for us. It's Isaiah who announced that the Messiah would be the sin-bearer, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah writes. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. It's Isaiah who, in chapter 1, becomes responsible for manger scenes at Christmas. This is maybe a little bit more fanciful use of the book of Isaiah. But turn over to chapter 1, verse 3. In a typical manger scene at Christmas, you'll have Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, and you'll have shepherds and kings. And we get all that from what the gospels say. You'll have sheep with the shepherds. But if you see a real manger scene, you'll also typically see an ox... And a donkey. Where did the ox and the donkey come from? Isaiah one verse three, in medieval exegesis was used to argue that there had to have been an ox and a donkey at the manger. I'm not particularly saying that that's the right interpretation of the verse, but I want historically that's how it was used. Verse three, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand me. So that text was taken to say, okay, the ox knows who the the little baby is and the donkey knows its master's crib and therefore ox and donkey belong in a manger scene. My my bigger point here, it is Isaiah has a lot to say about the Messiah. He paints picture after picture of the Messiah in his book. And so between now and Easter, We're going to take a look at Jesus in the fifth gospel. Seven different pictures of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And these pictures will not be simply pretty pictures. A better adjective would be necessary. These are necessary pictures for the world, for the people of God, for you individually. today's picture, Isaiah chapter 6, is very well known, even if it's not always linked to Jesus. I want to read uh, the chapter, actually only verses 1 through 8, and uh, then I want to preach it. It's a wonderful text. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train, or or the, the hem of his robe, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another back and forth and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. my mouth with the coal. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is God's word. Please be seated. This is a deeply personal text to me. This was a text that God used in my life. In effect to get me here. If it weren't for Isaiah 6, I would not be here this morning. This is a text that God used to confirm in me his call that I should go into ministry. God's used this text in countless other lives in similar ways. I mean, as I read the text, I'd I'd become a Christian a couple months before. I can't say it was my first reading of the text, but it's certainly one of my earliest readings of the text. And as I read it, this vision of God so high and lifted up led to such a deep awareness to me of my own sin as Isaiah responds to the to the antiphonal chant holy 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 is the lord god of hosts and he says i'm undone he reads here i'm lost it's a fuller word than that i'm crushed i'm destroyed i'm unhinged i'm undone from a man of unclean lips what I say it reflects my heart. It's unclean in the presence of this God and his, his burning ones, his seraphim. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm just part of a whole network and then the angel came with the tongs and touched Isaiah. And as I read it, I realized, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is God in his mercy reaching out and sending someone, sending in, my, in our case, in my case, Jesus of Nazareth sending his son to die for me so that I could have my guilt taken away and my sins atoned for. And then, you know, reading through the text and thinking through it, get to the point in verse 8. Whom shall I send God saying, who will go for us? Who will take this message? Who will take the words of life and bring them into people's lives? And I know it sounds totally flippant. I didn't mean it to be flippant. But I said to God, I have nothing better to do. Here am I. Send me. And he sent me. This is an incredible text. Uh, we have here in this text a picture of Jesus. Jesus, not the way we see him typically in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We get this Jesus here in the Gospels, maybe very briefly in the, the, the uh account of the transfiguration when Jesus is on the mountaintop with a few of his disciples and kind of his his inner core, who he really is kind of just for a brief period of time, just shines through, just briefly. But generally we don't get this Jesus in the gospel. Uh, We need this Jesus. What I call the, the fearsome Jesus, the terrifying Jesus, the overwhelming Jesus, the fear-inducing Jesus, the Jesus, verse 1, high and lifted up. In the text that was read earlier in the service, John saw Jesus this way in Revelation chapter 1. And John fell at his feet as though dead. This Jesus appears elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Chapter 7 he appears and there's a redeemed multitude worshiping him and there are angels around the redeemed multitude and the same thing happens. They fall down flat on their face before God. In this text I see sees Jesus. He sees the son of God to be more accurate. It's 740 BC. That's the date that we can pull out from that opening line in the, key the year that King Uzziah died. 740 B.C., Isaiah sees the Son of God. You say, well, Matt, come on. I, I don't see Jesus mentioned here in the text. Uh, why, isn't this just, why are you saying this is the Son of God? Isn't Isaiah just simply seeing God? Where do you get this Son-Jesus connection? And I say that because in the New Testament we're told that what Isaiah saw here was indeed the Son of God. It comes from John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12. In the Gospel of John chapter 12, at that particular point, John twelve forty one. at that point, uh, John is kind of stepping out. He's reflecting on Jesus and he quotes two texts from Isaiah. First from Isaiah 53, which is a great text about Messiah, the sin bearer. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6 from this text. He actually quotes from the verse, uh, verse 9, keep on hearing, do not understand, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and turn and be healed. He quotes that. And having quoted that from chapter 6, he then immediately adds, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' Glory. And spoke about him, about the Son of God. So this is a revelation of the Son of God. Isaiah saw, as we would put it today, Jesus' glory. He didn't understand the vision the way we would now, with our understanding of the Trinity, but but he saw it. And he needed to see it. He needed the glory. He needed the fearsome. Jesus You and I need the fearsome Jesus. High and lift it up. We need it that vision especially now. I want to give you two reasons why we need this fearsome Jesus. I'm going to frustrate you. There is so much in this text that I'm really only going to be able to deal with the opening of a couple of verses and leave a lot more. Well, I'll, I'll tell you how we're going to handle the rest a little later on in the sermon. But let me give you reason number one why we need the fearsome Jesus. We need the fearsome Jesus because Jesus has become so tiny anymore. We need it because of how tiny Tiny, Jesus has become. Look at the text. Verse 1, high and lifted up. I saw the Lord. I saw, we would say today, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. That little phrase, high and lifted up, is used three times in the book of Isaiah to picture God in his glory. Lofty and exalted is the way one translation put it. Another translation, seated on a high and elevated throne. So huge is he that the text says that the the train of his robe, actually I'd say hem because robes then didn't have trains. So the hem of his robe filled the temple. Now I did a little math, a little basic arithmetic. Back then, kings on their robes had hems that are much more uh, observable than today. They had thick, wide hems embroidered with fringe and needlework. These hems would be, you know, a couple inches high. So what Isaiah is telling us is that the temple, temple space, the interior of the temple, as he saw the Lord sitting there, the, 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 that, we'll say, that two-inch hem kind of filled it. So I figured, okay, so let me just do some math. Two inches equals 50 feet. That's how big, that's how high the interior space of the temple was. Two inches equals 50 feet, Okay. So, back then, a typical human being was five and a half feet high. So, just kind of using that as an approximation, I multiplied it all out. And lo and behold, if two-inch hem is 50 feet, then when Isaiah sees Jesus high and lifted up, he's looking at someone, the Son of God, Jesus the King, rising up above him 1,650 feet. That's way taller than the Statue of Liberty. That's way taller than the Eiffel Tower. That's way taller than one World Trade Center, the Freedom Tower. It's just huge. He's looking up. He's looking up at this enormous Jesus. Now, let me just say, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that when you and I meet Jesus, he's gonna be like you know, sixteen hundred and fifty feet tall. He's gonna be he's gonna be like he was human. Our, our dimension. The point of the vision is this is how big, this is how vast, this is how lofty and exalted Jesus is. Today, we generally lack that sense of the immensity of Jesus Christ, high and exalted. When I was in Turkey with the team, we had a a tourist day and we went and visited a couple churches there in Istanbul. One of the ones that we visited, probably the most famous, is Hagia Sophia, built in like 570. Inside there are beautiful mosaics. Here's a mosaic that's about 800 years old. Here's Jesus. This would be typical of the way people at that time Brothers and sisters in Christ, 800 years ago, this is how they thought of Jesus. He's up on the wall, looking down at you, splendid in gold. He's he's a little distant. His eyes, the way that that they did the eyes, they had kind of three-dimensional kind of painting there in, in applying the paint, so that wherever you move in the room, in the space, those eyes are always looking at you powerful we visited another church the Korah church built a little later than Hagia Sophia in this case this mosaic is only 700 years old you walk in and above you there's this this domed space and there's Jesus same kind of image Jesus looking down on you resplendent again in the gold and the radiance Jesus. My point is that brothers and sisters in Christ in the past, they had a a, a very full sense of the majesty and and the, the reverential beauty and the grandeur of Jesus. But today, here's an image from today. Here's Jesus today. Hollywood delivers us Jesus. I'm not saying this is bad. Jesus was a human being and he did wear clothing. He did have some sort of facial hair. But it's very different. This is our diet of Jesus today. We don 't have in our diet typically, the majestic, high and lofty Jesus. This Jesus, can we pop that, pop that back up again? This Jesus is typically kind of when you see him on the screen, he's kind of mystical, a little dreamy, kind of speaks Zen-like things every once in a while, you know, It's part of the part of the image. I like what Paul Miller, I want to read to you, what Paul Miller says. I quoted him on the back of your program, know me. He writes this. When we see Jesus portrayed today, he often comes across strangely. Hollywood frequently pictures Jesus in slow motion. In most films, Jesus talks slowly, walks slowly, and moves slowly. My 10-year-old daughter, Emily, and I were watching one of the better Jesus films, and we noticed that Jesus never blinked. I thought about that. I said, it's true. He's always got this stare. He never blinked. The other actors blinked, but Jesus never did. Our eyes began to hurt every time the camera focused on Jesus' face. So I decided to study Jesus with fresh eyes, forgetting what I knew, already knew or thought I knew about him. Gone, or at least rare, is the sense of Jesus, the fearsome. Jesus high and lifted up. Jesus the lofty. And as a result, when life gets tough, when life gets big, if your Jesus is already small, when life gets big, Jesus is so much smaller. How big is your Jesus? When was the last time that you fell down on your knees in the presence of Jesus, overwhelmed by his grandeur and his majesty, his, as Isaiah will go on to talk about in the central part of this vision, his purity, his holiness, his moral perfection. I love the way the seraphim here, seraphim, that they're burning ones. That's what the, the word means. Burning creatures. Always aflame, so to speak. So they're, they're, they're fiery. They're, they're fiery, pure. They're intense. Pure and intense in their devotion and service of the living God. The, the, I love the way that they cover themselves. Even though they're pure, they nevertheless cover themselves. Verse 2. With two he covered his face, you know, do not want to look too much at this God. Two, he he covered his his feet. We want to go wherever we go. We want to make sure it's where God wants us to go, and with two, he flew. It's just kind of this sense of, of modesty, of being small in the presence of this immense God. The writer of the Hebrews says this. Let us never forget it it was fitting that we should have such a high priest as Jesus holy innocent unstained separate from sinners and exalted high and lofty above the heavens this is our Jesus we need him as the fearsome Jesus Let me give a second reason why we need him. And that's because of the many changes and threats that are around us. Again, look back at the text. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's a time marker. As I've already said, that helps us to date this to 740 B.C. Isaiah... It's a long book, 66 chapters long. And in the course of those chapters, Isaiah very rarely gives us a time marker, only about a half a dozen times. When he does, it's really important. and It's also typical, typically in some way personal to him. Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is, is of the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah is the one that we know the least about. We get a sense in Jeremiah of Jeremiah's personality, his struggles, what he liked, what he didn't like, a little bit about his family life. Same thing with Ezekiel. I mean, they're, they're two very, very different people, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We don't learn much about Isaiah at all. It's almost like he's he's a, a window pane, a clear, you know. Uh, Nice, clean window pane. You can just look right through, not even think that the glass is there. You look right through and you see Jesus. But this is one of the moments where there's a little bit of a thumbprint, a little bit of Isaiah on the pane of glass. In the year that King Uzziah died, for whatever reason, that was important to Isaiah to include. The year King Uzziah died was a year that launched some major changes for Judah, for Isaiah. He didn't know it at the time. He may have had suspicion. He's writing this kind of looking back, back in the year when King Uzziah died. He realized how strategically timed this vision was in light of what would happen. King Uzziah but let me read to you a description of King Uzziah from John Oswald if you want to read anything uh, about Isaiah uh, John Oswalt is a guy that got, he's been studying Isaiah for decades he knows the book here's what he writes about Uzziah Judah had not known any king like Uzziah since the time of Solomon Uzziah had been an efficient administrator and an able military leader under his leadership Judah had grown in every way which I had been a true king, and how easy it must have been to focus one's hopes and trusts upon a king like that. And what will happen then when such a king dies? Well, in the year that this king died, in the year that, for instance, Judah began to take a turn spiritually for the worse. Uzziah had been a reasonably godly godly king. But with his death, that would begin to change. His son, Jotham, had ruled Judah in a co-regency alongside his dad for about 10 years. And then he continued to reign for another six years. He was a feeble king. He didn't do much. Kind of lived off the momentum of his dad. But he died six years later. And then the grandson of Uzziah, Ahaz, became king. And he abandoned the worship of Jehovah God. And he followed hard after false gods. So much changed in six years. Under Uzziah, there had been a a period of peace and prosperity for Judah. But with his death, all that would now begin to change. It was a a kingdom to the north, Assyria. And under Uzziah, Assyria had come to kind of like stumbling along. But right around the time that Uzziah dies, a new guy becomes king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. It's not a name you hear much these days. And he shook everything up. Within years, Judah would be threatened. There would be battles. There would be loss. There would be poverty. For the northern kingdom, they would be taken into exile. Everything changed when Uzziah died. That was a sea change. And Isaiah, as he looks back to the year that the king died, he can see how necessary it was for him to have received a life-shaping vision of who God is. As we would put it today, a life-shaping vision of who Jesus is. He needed it. We do too. A vision of a king who's high and lifted up, who sits above all the changes that are going on around here. A king who's so vast that he will never run out of any resource that you and I need to face the changes around us. A king, verse 6, he's called the king, who's far greater than any king, verse 1, King Uzziah, no matter how good that king is was we need this vision now. We need this fearsome Jesus now. There's so many dangers, so many threats, so many changes going on around us. Let me ask you this. What gets you frightened? What gets you terrified? When we were flying back from Turkey, I had a moment that I... Often have when I'm on a plane. The seat light sign came on. You had to kind of tighten up your seat belts. The announcement comes on, expecting some turbulence, and we did hit some turbulence. And there was one kind of turbulence where we just started to drop, and I, I oh, I just started, I panicked, and I had this this thing. I have it, as I say, very often when I'm on a plane. Not always. This kind of inner dialogue erupted. What am I doing up here? I don't know anything about the pilot. I don't know how he or she did at pilot, at flight school. And I, I'm hurtling along in, the, in this metal tube, 550 miles an hour, seven miles above the ground, and the food stinks. What am I doing here? I panicked. I mean, I'm making a light of it now, but it's kind of like, you're desperate. Nothing, totally helpless, not really. In the year the King Isaiah died, Isaiah saw Jesus high, lifted up, bigger than anything. And in the plane, I had to kind of process in my mind and say, Jesus, you've got this one too. You're with me here, and you're bigger than the turbulence. What gets you frightened? Medical diagnosis? Physical issue? Political upheaval? Financial turmoil? financial strain, the future, high school students, high school seniors, university, uh, seniors, seminary, seniors, What, what will my future look like? What will I be doing a year from now? Where am I headed? Do relationships frighten you, a particular relationship? What if this doesn't work out? What if I lose him or her? How will I please him? What if he gets angry? What if she gets upset? Injustice. Raising a child in a world filled with injustice. The coronavirus. was very much on my mind in traveling. I hate to say this. But, I mean, those are the things that we can list right now. But maybe, you know, like Isaiah, when the, in the year that King Uzziah died, he had a, a certain sense of what might happen, but there were so many things that happened that he could never have anticipated. So many threats, so many dangers, so many changes. We have no clue what tomorrow, what we will face tomorrow. And what that means is that we all need to see Jesus high, lifted up, the sovereign, almighty King Who's king over all kings, shepherd over all shepherds, leader over all leaders, the king over all of our worries and fears and frights and uncertainties and regrets. Jesus figured he was speaking so big, 1650 feet tall, just enormous, bigger than anything and with an inexhaustible supply of care and grace for you. We need this fearsome Jesus in these days of change and threat. Let me conclude with these two points. First of all, as I warned you, I've only covered a small portion of this text. As he is presented here, Jesus is seen first of all in terms of his Hugeness, that's what we've looked at. But he's also presented here in terms of his holiness, his moral purity, his fiery, uh, internal coherence with righteousness. I haven't been able to talk about that really. So I'm going to throw that one out to you, that second one, to you in your personal devotions this week, in your family discussions, in your small group. Why do we, why does the world need a holy king as well as a huge king? And why do we, why does the world need cleansing? What are our uncleannesses? And have we allowed the living God to come with his burning coal and purify it? Second thing I want to say is that you cannot manufacture a vision of Jesus high and lifted up. It's the Holy Spirit of God who does that you can read texts like this and you should you can meditate upon texts like this and you should you can pray around texts like this and you should you can slow down in your hectic schedule and take 15 minutes a day and and sit in a text like this and you should you can fast and seek after God in light of a text like this and you should But it's the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit of God who will do the revealing. It's the Holy Spirit of God who opened up the other dimension and showed Isaiah in that moment, Jesus, high and lifted up. So, take those little steps of obedience and faith. Read texts like this, meditate on them, pray in them. Slow down and sit in them for 15 minutes. Set that apart. Do all that. But do all that calling out to the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit of God, reveal to me Jesus. Reveal to me Jesus as he is. High. Lifted up. Fearsome. Lofty. Jesus. Holy Spirit of God. This is what I need. This is what our church needs. This is what the church across the globe needs. This is, even though they don't realize it, this is what the world needs. Jesus, high and lift it up. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we're thankful for the way that you by your Spirit, intervened into the life of Isaiah and showed him at the beginning of his ministry, showed him the Son of God in all his glory. We need that same Jesus. We need to see him. We need your Holy Spirit to bring him home to us, not just occasionally, but, but regularly, daily, That's my cry this morning for us as your people. And certainly my cry this morning is that as we look at at other texts from Isaiah about Jesus in the weeks ahead, the Holy Spirit of God, you would open up, pull back the curtain and help us with the eye of faith to see Jesus in all his splendor, in all his glory, as he's presented to us in this grand book. We need to see Jesus, the fearsome Jesus, high and lifted up. Our hearts are open. Answer our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.